Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Privacy Please. I'm your host, Cameron Ivey. And on today's episode, we have a very special guest, Nina Wyatt. She is the Chief Information Security Officer for Sunflower Bank, and she is a delight. I hope you enjoy. And again, these opinions expressed here today are Nina's and not associated or representative of her professional network, associations, or her employer, Sunflower Bank. Please enjoy. So, Nina, I'm dying to know, what's your favorite hometown restaurant and do you do you have a go-to order or what's your favorite food? Well, I I am I love soup. Um and it's probably the best. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. the best thing that I can cook uh on my own. I I don't know why, but I'm every kind of soup I've ever attempted or just throw together myself is is pretty amazing. Um not to brag. And there's this little <laughs> little place down the end of the street called Corner Kitchen uh and they make fabulous homemade soup. So that's my favorite spot to go and, and grab some soup, especially uh, from in Michigan where it's it's cold half the time. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Something warm, always a good good go-to. Yeah. Um, awesome. Um, so kind of turn things over. What, what is the one thing you wish you had when you started out in security? Oh, I wish that I had somebody tell me about the challenges that come with this job. I feel like I'm, I would have been probably better prepared to kind of handle the the, the swings sure. and the up, ups and downs if I had had that that insight ahead of, ahead of time. And when did you actually get into security? Was that uh, out of college or? You know, um, I started working as an admin at a defense contractor Um way back in the day. And I'd eventually moved into a permanent position in their security team, which okay. uh, so I was responsible for printing and, and managing the badge system. So I was okay. first introduced to security uh, via physical security. And I had a couple of mentors in that, in that company that had kind of inspired me to go in the direction of IT security. So I kind of have a little bit on the physical side uh, where I started and then kind of moved into IT over the years. That's awesome. Really interesting. All right. So what are you most curious about right now? I am most curious about um, how companies are going to respond to the new data privacy expectations. Great topic. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't you say, Gabe? <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of this podcast <laughs> again? <laughs> I was pleased. So, so yeah, let's double click into that one a little bit. So, as as a security professional, as a CISO, and a a consumer yourself. How do you view that through both of those lens? Like what's what's kind of the approach you take when you think about how you're going to respond to that as one of the individuals who's going to be responsible for protecting the privacy of, of your own data at another organization? I think that, you know, uh, consumers in general, that we've made a lot of, mm-hmm. we haven't fully put the expectation on companies to protect our data and we've chosen convenience and other luxuries that technology provides us, which are amazing, um, instead of data privacy. We don't holistically have a, a clear understanding of what all that means on the back end as consumers. And as a CISO, um, you know, I know all of the things that companies should be doing to protect our, our data or my data. And it, it still strikes me as 
is concerning that companies still aren't doing this and they're not doing it in a manner that is completely transparent to, to consumers these days. You're, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the ways I, I tend to look at my own privacy is in that very trade-off sense. I'm a big believer in, and maybe I take it a little far sometimes, that if, if you're not the consumer, you're the product, right? But there are times when I'm willing to be the product and trade some of that convenience for for that access and that, that information, et cetera. But I think by and large, most consumers don't understand that. So is that something you encounter in your own personal life? Do you ever do you ever just interact with an organization and they're asking you for information? You're like, there's no way you need this. Prime example, you move to a new town, you get a new dentist and they're like, I need your social security number. And this this person across the desk is just pen and paper in hand, ready to write it down on, on, on a piece of paper. Do you just stop and ask them like, well, why do you need this? And no, I'm not giving it to you. I have done that before. And I, much to the frustration of the person behind that desk, um, spit, filling out the paper forms uh, with a social security number, they don't need it, right? They have my insurance number, my insurance provider. There's, there's no need for that social security number yet. Every medical provider out there still asks for it. And that still, that still boggles me. Well, the social security number was never intended to be an identifier for individuals. It wasn't ever intended to be an identification um, or source of truth for a person's uh, identity. And it it turned into that all of a sudden over the years. And I'm not really sure why. We should should probably spend some time on one of these episodes digging into that why, because you're right, it it has morphed into exactly that. And it, it does always strike me as curious why the phone company needs my social security number. Like you, you don't need that. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And and that kind of leads us right down the path of one of the other things is they don't make it easy for us to understand not just what data they have, but again, so how are they processing it? Like it's hard enough to understand why you need my social security number. But if you were to ask any of those organizations, like, well, what do you do with it? You get a myriad of answers that don't tend to make sense either. No, and I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised that many of the people that you're asking that question, just they're not in IT. They don't, they don't understand where it goes, where it's stored, right. if it's processed, if it's shared with any third parties. They're not going to know that, that answer. And, you know, companies have so much technology at their hands. And if there's, if there's a day and age that we've empowered everybody to be very transparent and given them the tools to be transparent, it's today. And companies aren't transparent with, with what they're doing with our data. That paradigm is shifting though. Did you spend any time uh, this year so far filing your own uh, CCPA subject rights requests? No. No, I was going to say, I'm, I'm still waiting for, for several of them to return information on myself, but that's exactly what, where, where I'm at with it is looking at this new paradigm shift and having that power in my hand as a consumer and, and wanting answers. And I, and I know that that's uh I'm not the only consumer out there in that boat. Well, it interests me because, you know, when you look at the most fundamental control that companies or technology departments in companies have, it's, it's really inventory, knowing where your assets are. And if you don't know where all of your data is um, and what you do with it and where it goes, and then what third parties do with that data, how can you, with transparency, respond to a request like that? How would you know? Yeah. That is the question. <laughs> Why do you feel the convenience technology offers is regarded over an individual's concern for data privacy today? 
I don't think that companies make it easy for a consumer to understand what data they have, where it's stored, how it's processed or transmitted, and who they share that data with and why. Um, you know, you have these lengthy terms and conditions <laughs> things and you click agree and you can read through yep. that, but you really have to peel and read between the lines to really understand what they're doing with your data. And they're not, they don't, they don't offer much insight in those terms and conditions about data privacy today. Right. I think uh, the second I think if consumers understood, right, had clarity around how data is managed and what companies do with that data, then of course they would be asked, they would be inquisitive, they'd be asking more questions, and they would be more conservative about making the decisions that they make when they're interacting uh, with technology or online. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you, could you provide an example that consumers are not truly understanding how technology works on the back end? Um, and how their choices on social media or other widely used platforms could cause an issue in the future? Sure. Um, you know, we see a lot of a lot of consumers that are just using technology to manage life, right? To they're they're doing their banking, um, they're volunteering at a school, they're managing right. their children's identities. Um, and let's just uh, throw an example out there of like a mom of two who's, on the, the school PTO board, she's the treasurer. Um, we'll call her Karen because Karen is in a lot of memes these days. <laughs> so, so Karen is on Facebook, and it's the first <laughs> it's the first day of school. And Karen posts a, a picture of her kids holding that chalkboard sign that says the their age and their school grade and the school name. Um, Karen's in several groups on Facebook and she's the administrator of the Facebook group for the PTO of her, her kids school district. Uh, cause she's, you know, that treasure entity of the PTO board. Um, she manages all the accounting activities for the school PTO. Um, and Karen just subscribed to an amp that's going to make accounting easier for her. Uh, and she uses Facebook to create her login for that app. Karen does not realize <laughs> that by using the same credentials uh, with Facebook as she is with this accounting app, that we're, she's now giving this app company uh, visibility to information from Facebook, all the groups that she's in, her kids' information, and all the information that she's posted regularly throughout her Facebook uh, entity. Um, and so she's inadvertently sharing several data elements with this, this app company, this accounting app company. Um, Karen does not realize that her, her credentials to Facebook were already stolen months ago. And because these credentials are widely known and she also used the same credentials for this accounting app. Now a threat actor can access um, that information from the accounting app to, to with, you know, malicious intent to either to steal uh, transactional data to steal funds, uh, access her email account, um, purchase history, home address, children's ages, the school they attend, etc. It's all out there. And I think the challenge with PII or personally identifiable information is that in a single Facebook post, we don't really think about, uh, is it sensitive that I'm posting a picture of my son holding his school age in the, in the name of the school that he's in? But you combine that with other pieces of, of personally identifiable information. And all of a sudden you have this whole profile of a person that nobody knew existed before. 
And oftentimes we do this on an individual basis and it doesn't seem like to be a big deal. But when people gain access to multiple pieces of that PII, then all of a sudden there's a wealth of information there um, and information that can be used to compromise either your bank account or some other thing that you hold value uh, that's valuable to you. So I I think we see that a lot. Um, Karen isn't asking that app company what they're going to do with the Facebook data that they've gained access to because Karen doesn't know. She doesn't care. She's (laughs) trying to manage life. And that company didn't come out and say, Hey, we're going to borrow this data from your Facebook activity to keep doing the business that we do and also sell this other data to this other company to, to help monetize and, uh, and, you know, further our interests as a company. So, you know, that's just one example, but you know, we see this all the time. Great example. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty common. <clears throat> Gabe, I mean, do you have anything to piggyback off of, of that example? Yeah, you know, I, I just had a scary thought and I'm almost afraid to, to Google and look it up. <laughs> yeah, because shared credentials is nothing new. We've been dealing with this since, well, the dawn of credentials, right? And, and we, we certainly understand how that problem has been exacerbated. But aggregated uh, authentication mechanisms such as Facebook um, and in general, you know, single sign-on applications have kind of made this problem a little bit worse. Email has become kind of the master key to our accounts. Like oftentimes in talking to to lay persons, if you would, they're always like, yeah, but if someone gets into my email, big deal. What are they going to find out? Like that I've been emailing my grandmother? And my response to them is usually, well, how do you reset your password if you forget it to your bank? And they're like, oh, right. (laughs) Yeah, oh, right. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's like, well, what happens when you leverage these shared credentials for the, you know this one this this one source of truth for getting back into the, the rest of of, of your, uh, your your life? And you know whether or not this trend will change still remains to be seen. But I'm curious on your overall thoughts on whether or not this new regulatory landscape, you know, around privacy. Will, will we be able to get consumers, you think, thinking about these things? Or or is Gabe and Nina going to have to run around telling everyone about, you know, why their email actually is important? Um, yeah, I think it is going to change. I think the more consumers understand and the more clarity they have, they're going to have the insight and and some some principle to to ask and to inquire, right? I mean, if you you don't know what you don't know and you can't manage what you don't know, but the more visibility uh, people have about how data does matter and how their email is sensitive, even if they're just emailing their grandmother on the one-off chance that they use it to reset their password for their bank account, they're going to start connecting the dots and they're going to start caring. Um, you know, we see that, we see that now. I, I just... I just saw a video on LinkedIn with the the chief privacy officer for for IKEA, and she had she had made this video about being transparent and how IKEA cares about consumer data and how they're going to make their whole mobile app experience when people are shopping very transparent to the consumer about what information they're seeing, why they're seeing it, and give consumers the option to turn and toggle things off and on based upon what they care about and, and, and what data they want to keep private versus data that they want to share with them. So I think, again, the more transparency that co- companies offer, the more people are going to start kind of jumping on that bandwagon and that trend mm-hmm. of 
caring. They're going to know what questions to ask and what things to care about. And I would say it's not lost to me that IKEA is very much uh, an organization who's headquartered in the European Union, though, right? And privacy has has certainly taken a different priority in that part of the world versus the uh, the U.S. At least in in the in the not so distant past. I it really concerns. I just I'm so surprised that it's taken us this long, right? The, the California the CCPA just came out, and that's that's great. That's a step in the right direction, and we're going to continue moving in that right direction as we do with state by state legislature. And once we get enough states on on board, you know, then all of a sudden we'll we'll have federal guidance that's acceptable with regards to data privacy. But it really shocks me that it's taken us this long to realize that electronic data knows no state boundaries. Like, I don't know why that's a surprise to everyone. Right. Like how can we, why would legislature that is driven state by state be effective for data that doesn't observe state boundaries, right? Like paper does a lot easier to control what you send in and out of a state. Uh, if it's a paper copy or a fax, than it is to an email. You don't even know where it's going. So it's really, exactly. it's shocking to me that, that it, it's taken us this long to consider it. Especially with uh, Terminator Judgment Day. I mean, come on, we've all been warned. <laughs> <laughs> we have been warned. <laughs> we've been warned. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, what do, you, what do you feel like the feasibility of how companies respond to the heightened demand of consumer expectations? I, I think um, companies have to really get great at understanding what they have where it is, how they use it. Um, it goes back to that. Yeah, that, that fundamental asset management inventory. In order to manage something effectively, you have to know what you have and where it's at. Is it still supported? Is it vulnerable? Where does it go? What do we do with it? Um, and that's probably one of the most difficult control areas for a company to get their arms around, especially as things move and change so quickly. I think, yeah. I mean, that's no easy feat for a company to really get that total life cycle management around what they have in their environment. And even what, you know, we leverage cloud service providers all the time. How do you, how do you even measure and monitor what is leaving your organization? So I think, I think it is feasible, but we have to be experts at life cycle management and we really have to take a hard look at at ourselves and and our companies and how we do things and really put emphasis on that inventory of data. I want to touch on that one uh, quite a bit, but first I'm going to hit you with a fun fact. Terminated Judgment Day released in 1991. HIPAA signed into law in 1996. So there you have it. (laughs) They did not take a message quickly from Terminator. Not at all. But you mentioned it really quickly and very quickly. So HIPAA being released in 1996, it would be decades before we see this glut of privacy regulation again, namely the last year and a half, two years, right? Um, now we have this glut of privacy regulation um, between TCPA, GDPR, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the speed of things moving, and again, if I, I can tie this into just your general security uh, background here, I would forget background, it's what you do every single day. We've, we've gotten pretty good at security operations, right? So we've gotten fairly good at viewing threats and understanding as they come into our environment and, and analyzing them and triaging them. But privacy risks, privacy threats, I, I don't see yet 
where there's been some fundamental understandings of how we're going to operationalize privacy. I have some personal thoughts around those things. I have some professional thoughts around those also that I've been kind of, um, you know, throwing around, but I'd love to get your input on where you see just overall privacy operations. And, and I guess first we should probably define what we even mean by privacy operations, but I'll start with one of the things you said, understanding when and how data is being moved, you know, to third parties. Well, still, it goes back to inventory, right? You didn't have threat management or, you know, when you're talking about security operations and and how that has evolved over time, you didn't really have that evolution of security operations and all the fun and fancy tools we have in security today without companies understanding what is in their inventory Mm. and how to scan those things for vulnerabilities and how to bump all of that data up against one another to draw conclusions, right? Um, and aggregate that data to say, oh, well, these things wouldn't really be a big deal in singular form. But if you compile all of these things about all of these servers and you look at it with that lens on, then all of a sudden it is a big deal. It is a high risk. Right. And I think, again, that the same thing with privacy we ask about privacy when we go to the dentist because we know about it. We know that that social security number that's written on a post-it note is going to be stuck on somebody's monitor for three days and that it, maybe it'll be shredded, but it'll probably just go in the waste bin. And we know that they have a cleaning crew that comes in at midnight to, to clean the office, right? Companies have to know what data they have, where it's at, how they manage it. it we need to wrap that lifecycle management, the same thing we do for our hardware and software, same thing with privacy of data. And I think that's the only way we can operate, operationalize privacy of data. Yeah, I, I can't even, not that I would have argued with it at all, but it's funny. I immediately went in my mind right to just like the the operationalize it thing because I think maybe I took for granted that, well, of course you've, of course you've inventoried your data, but no, they, they haven't. They absolutely haven't. That is, well, that, that is where it begins. It's really difficult to inventory your data, you know, when we as companies, right, we want we want things to be available to our consumers all the time, right? That is the expectation. High demand, speed gets begets speed. You you put a result in and you want results returned right away quickly. And so with these cloud service providers, right, they've got multiple data centers all over the world and data is bouncing back and you know, back and forth and copied and copied and copied to make sure that you, the consumer, can get that result uh, really quickly. And it's always the result that you expect. And so when we're talking about sharing data with third parties, whether we're just using it as cold storage or we're, <laughs> we're sharing it to return some result, how do we go to that other company and say, well, give me, tell me exactly what data centers my data is going to be traversing through and stored in? And how do I capture that in a manner you know, in my inventory system and in risk rate that, how do I do that? Yeah. And what does privacy risk even look like? Like what is the risk that you will re-identify data in your environment? Because I've told you to forget about me, or I've told you not to share it with a third party, but you've gone ahead and you've purchased another marketing list, or you've, you've acquired another organization that I didn't make that same request with, and you start combining data sets, you can analyze, you know, purchasing behaviors of, of individuals and things of that nature. What's the risk that you will reintroduce that data into, 
into a pool that will allow you to re-identify me even after I've told you to. I don't I, I certainly don't think we are close to maturity on things like privacy risk. No, we're not. Um, <laughs> I, I would agree with that. I think that um, it is feasible for companies to to manage privacy of data if they have full inventory and lifecycle management around that data. They know what they're doing with their data, why and where it's stored and collected, processed and transmitted. That in and of itself is a challenge. Beyond that, you know, once you have that information, then you can start understanding, well, this data is sensitive and this data is not. And so that can really start driving those risk-aware decisions as to whether or not you share something, right? You might say, you know what, we do need to share this, but we don't need to share the full number or all the characters in this string. We really only need to share this as an identifier to map it to this. And therefore, we can kind of omit the risk, right? But you really can't can't drive those risk-aware decisions without knowing what you have and how it's used and how sensitive it is. So that that really needs to be the focus, I think, of, of many companies today is really classifying their data, inventorying data, and understanding the risk that each data variable poses. And then you can kind of start looking at it holistically and making those decisions. So I genuinely appreciate that. The way you described dealing with the risk was in and I'm going to use some of the language from, from the law itself, curing the data, right? So what you described was kind of altering the data. Um, but you even described in such a way that some of that was privacy privacy preserving or format preserving as well. And those are, those are I think, in the conversations I'm having still kind of missing from how do you enable the business to still do what they need to do, but allow that data to be shared and handled, et cetera, versus just taking the big no the big no hammer to the data and saying, no, we're just going to delete it. No, you just can't have access to it. So big kudos to you. Not not that you needed it, but I really genuinely appreciate that because I know how much security can be the department of no. And what you just articulated there was, was very eloquent in terms of here's one way that you should look at handling that data and still making it useful to the business. Absolutely. Um, And that's, I think that's a challenge for people uh, in, in my role across the board, right? You want to do the right thing by the consumer, but you also need to meet the business. And so I always try to look at any problem or barrier with a, I take the the Pinto, the the Ford, Ford Edge and the Cadillac, right? These are your options mm-hmm. from low risk to high risk. What decisions can we make and, and how do we enable the business, but also provide that, that security wrapper over it so that we're doing the right thing? Um, and that's really a struggle for a lot of people because a lot of people have have a challenge kind of going, well, can I still do the right thing? Can I still follow all the rules um, and get the desired outcome without doing it this one way? And I think the answer to that is always yes. Yeah, you can absolutely do multiple things to get the same outcome um, in a different manner that that meets everybody's objectives, right? You just have to be open to all of that. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm going to challenge you a little bit. What type of evidence do you think suggests that companies don't have a handle of uh, their asset management? Oh, this is a touchy (laughs) subject. (laughs) 
Um, I think when we see a data breach in the news and it comes out and then you don't hear about it for a few weeks or a couple months and then all of a sudden it's, oh, we've identified that it's this many records. The fact that it's taking companies so long to understand not the how, how, not the how this happened, but what and when, like what was what was breached and who was affected, the fact that that's taking companies so long to report um, and figure out through forensics and whatnot, I think suggests that companies aren't, they aren't inventorying data and really understanding what is where in all, in all cases. It's a great, great point. I mean, do you think that some of the companies also are withholding it on purpose for as long as they can? Well, I think, I mean, that's a best practice, right? You don't want to falsely report. Uh, You don't want to ensue panic. And so you really have to have your facts straight uh, before you go public on something as sensitive as a data breach. But I think still for a company to take eight months to figure out what and who was affected on anything, that's a long time. That's a long time when you look at, you know, us being able to return results or database queries in milliseconds. So how do we, how, why is it taking us this long? I realize there's a validation component. There's a legal component, but, but still, I, I still think that that, that length of time is a stretch because they have to continue to validate their, their results. Why? Because they're not a hundred percent confident that those results are accurate. That, that is that, you know, query and, and this process that we followed to find out what and who was impacted was a is a hundred percent fail or foolproof. Um, they can't say that. So they have to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And I think that's, what's taking so long. makes a lot of sense. I was going to say, I mean, I mean, for something to take eight months for someone's personal information, it's just, I think that's a great point that most companies do not have a handle of their asset management. Yes. At least we would hope that's probably the case. I think it's changing, though. I, you know, I, I feel like I said, as consumers become more aware of the risk and they, they get the lingo, right? Because companies start using that lingo. Um, companies start building more privacy measures in the apps that they interact with. Right. Um, it's be, you know, ten years from now, it's going to be a completely different story. And the more consumers care about it the more companies are, you know, supply and demand <laughs> goes right back to the basics. Yeah. The, the more they demand it, the more it will be supplied. So it, it's going to be really interesting to see how things transform and evolve over the next decade with regards to privacy. It's true. It, it can very much well change. Gabe, did you have something? No, that's everything. Uh, that's everything I have. I, I, I do want to thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts. Uh, I, I certainly could carry on this conversation for, for several hours. Um, sure. uh, definitely, definitely more that uh, we, we can touch. And we've got RSA coming up next week. Um, might reach out to you after that and kind of get your thoughts on, on some of the trends and some of the common themes that we see there. Uh, and uh, we can definitely do this again. I'd love yeah. that. And also, uh, I wanted to ask you too, because you were kind of wheeling into it around the next 10 years. What, what are you most excited about for this year, um, being 2020, obviously that's a cool, cool year to say, but what, what are you most excited about in your career and your, um, your path into data privacy and being a, the chief information security officer for 
Um, let's see. I am most excited. I actually am uh, working to get certified in uh, privacy program management. Um, so awesome. So really legitimize all of this stuff I have in my brain. And um, beyond that, I'm really on, on the side volunteering with the state of Michigan to, you know, they just issued a, a standard set of computer science expectations in, in education. And so partnering, partnering with a couple agencies to really try and, and help teachers understand what they can what they can teach and integrate with their lesson plans to really get our next generation prepared for uh, being IT enthusiasts. That's awesome. I mean, <clears throat> what, there's nothing better than just anyone in this industry to, to come together and help each other learn to try to be ahead of the game as much as we can all together to protect what matters most. Absolutely. Yeah, well, Nina, thank you so much for uh, your time. It really, we really appreciate it. And this was really fun. I hope to do some more in the future. Great. Thank you so much, Cameron. Gabe, it's been a great uh, pleasure. It's mine. Thank you very much. Enjoy. All right. Thank you. See ya. Oh, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Privacy Please. This podcast is brought to you by Spirion, protecting what matters most. Join us next week and every week as we delve into the intriguing world of security and privacy. You can email us at privacyplease at spirion.com and hit us up on our Twitter at privacyplspod. If you want to read more into these topics, check out our blogs on spirion.com. Again, I'm Cameron Ivey, an all-around decent guy. Until next time.